All right, guys, we got a special episode. This is a throwback with Sal DiStefano. Uh, he's actually the author of The Resistance Training Revolution, currently the host on the Mind Pump Media podcast. They've been ranked number one in the fitness space for a long time. And uh, we talk a little bit about our history together in the first, say, you know, one to uh, 10 minutes of this uh, episode. And then we kind of get into the jacked politics version of this podcast, where we talk a little bit about what's going on. September 2020 is when we actually uh, recorded this episode. So if you know what's going on, the BLM, the protests that are going on right now, um, you know, New York's uh, school system is delaying their open from the COVID. There's a lot going on and a lot to be talked about. So without further ado, let's get this thing on. What's good, my friend? How's life treating you? You know, life's good, man. Um, I, you know, I got married this year in February to my wife, Jessica. We're pregnant. So we got a baby coming in October. Congrats, That's- dude. That's awesome. I know, dude. I already so I have two kids, right? My son's fifteen. My daughter's about to turn eleven, and I decided to start the clock over again. So I don't know if that was. (laughs) I guess that's a good thing, right? I know what I'm in for. For me, family is it's the most purposeful thing that I've ever you know experienced. So I'm I'm excited for that. And then you know, of course, I get to talk for a living. That's like a dream job for somebody who likes to talk a lot, like me. Yeah, yeah. And we had a little history uh, back in the day. And um, you know, for the people that are just catching this loon late or just don't know about Sal, you know, Sal has been someone who is uh, basically taking this like podcasting by storm. When we started, there was a, a few episodes that we aired when I was on with these guys and I actually got cold feet. I, I got scared and said, you know, I got a lot of things going on. I'm not ready to put my balls on the line because we were kind of crazy up front. You know, I think they still do some things that are pretty extreme, but I think they've taken a really great approach to it. So where did the switch come from, Sal? Talk to me about the evolution of Mind Pump. What kind of arc and, and what, what kind of feedback did you get that made you guys decide to go in kind of like a, a more polished approach? Okay. So this is all hindsight, right? So looking back, I can be, it's easy for me to say, you know, what worked, what didn't work. And, but at the time we just kind of followed it and allowed it to naturally evolve. When you heard, when you listened to early days, mind pump was three dudes that had zero media experience. We'd never done a podcast. We'd never done, been on video. We had great chemistry. So we liked talking to each other. And when I had first met my co-hosts, you know, every once in a while you meet that person that you could just talk to forever. We had this amazing chemistry. All of us were not afraid of going in whatever direction the conversation would go. So we all kind of shared that. We all didn't like the current state of things in the fitness industry. So we had that in common. But the real big thing that I think kind of came through all that was you heard three trainers with decades of experience working with and training people. And so why is that important? It's not necessarily because we're super knowledgeable about fitness and training and exercise. I mean, that's a part of it, but that's not the big part. The big part is when you train people one-on-one, everyday people for years and years and years and years and years, you start to get really, really good at communicating fitness to the average person. You become very, very good at getting people to understand certain concepts and how to modify their behaviors. Because initially as an early trainer, you think you're just going to give people workouts, give them meal plans, motivate the hell out of them, be kind of a, you know, a drill sergeant and that's going to work. And that never works long term. And so over time, you really learn how to communicate. So when you listen to the early days of Mind Pump, it was terrible media people who had great chemistry, but could communicate fitness and health very, very well. Now, over time, reps and rep, just like with exercise, right? You do a lot of reps and a lot of sets and eventually you get good at that particular exercise. We did so many podcasts and we would do five a week. 
that after 200, 300, 400, 500 episodes, we just got better at the media part. We got better at the podcasting part and how we come across um, when we're communicating on the podcast. So now what you hear are very experienced trainers with a few thousand hours of experience now podcasting. So I definitely don't think we're media expert, but we're definitely experienced, or at least far more experienced than when we first started. So that's why it evolved in that direction. So when you listen to early days, Mind Pump, it's rough. Good fitness information, but really rough. Now, eh, not not as rough. Still good fitness information. Right on. So one thing I noticed when we were, we were together is with four people, and you guys now bring in guests and everything, you guys got a thought in the back of your mind and someone's speaking. How do you handle that? Because like that was a big thing for me. I, I'm like you. I like to talk. I know that you're very obviously uh, a very dominant host on the show. How do you guys handle you know interrupting each other or waiting for a thought? And so many times it's like that thing, you want to say it, but then it's just like, oh, it's gone. I forgot. What was I going to say? Yeah, that's again, that's another skill that you develop through practice. But you know, we have, again, we have really, really good, uh, good chemistry, I should say. We blend really well with each other, especially early on. Eventually, you start to learn each other's patterns. You start to learn each other's uh, rhythms. That actually took us a long time to learn with interviews, by the way. But then you throw someone else in there, and all of a sudden, it got kind of strange. It took us probably 50, 60 interviews before that started to feel comfortable. Well. So I, I think it's a lot of it's practice. It really is. I mean, we definitely had good chemistry initially, but you just start to learn, you know, like I can tell when Adam's about to stop a sentence or a thought. I know when, you know, Justin wants to jump in or I need to jump in, right? We can read each other really well now, but early on, it was definitely more rough. It just took practice. Right on. All right, man. So let's talk a little bit about it. What, I mean, besides having a family right now, you got the two kids and you got another one on the way with the wife and everything. So congrats again on that situation. Just beautiful journey, you know, as fatherhood. Now you got Adam going through that as well. And just seeing that, I don't know if you've watched my channel or watched the evolution, but uh, <laughs> my follower account goes down because I post about more things about my family and the priorities that I care about today versus, <laughs> you know, what people probably want to hear. I actually had someone crush me on a, on a DM that said something about being irrelevant over the years. And, wow. uh, uh, you know, you're losing followers. And I was like, he's not wrong if he's considering that I was looking to be a fitness influencer, but that's not what I'm looking to be. It's more about your priorities today. So like for you, uh, Adam told me some cool things that you might have going on. I'm not sure if you're willing to share any of that, but like, what's the next six months to a year look like for you? What, what are your goals? Goals? Well, right now I'm, I'm in the process of writing a book that's going to kind of represent the mind pump and our philosophy. Really what I'm trying to target is I'm trying to communicate to the average person in an effective way in regards to fitness and nutrition, but more specifically around resistance training, because resistance training is, you know, as well as I do, right? Resistance training is, it's not viewed as like the primary form of exercise for the average person. In other words, let's say you go to the doctor, you're the average person, not us, right? Not fitness enthusiasts. And the doctor says, hey, your blood pressure is high. You need to start exercising. You start working out. The first form of exercise a person thinks about is what? Walking, running, jogging, moving. Yeah. They don't think weights. They don't think resistance training. Now, they should because when you really break it down and you look at a few different things, the benefits that resistance training provides combined with the things that we need now Resistance training is actually the superior form of exercise, especially though if you only can pick one, that should be the one that you pick. And so part of what I write about in the book is around that. I'm in that process right now. I've never written a book before. I've written a lot of blogs. I've written a lot of guides. 
never written a book before. So that's a whole nother, you know, monster or whatever. There's always stuff happening here with my partners. I, we're always trying to grow. I love the fact that everybody's so growth minded. So we hit one milestone and it's always like, what else can we do? And everybody's so eager to grow and it's very challenging. It's very fun. I've never had so much fun in my life. I've always enjoyed what I've done. Never had this much fun though. It's awesome. One thing I'll tell you, you know, from having Adam back on my show, his growth, you know, his maturity, you know, from back in the day when I was living in California with you guys and just, you know, shooting it up with you guys, he wasn't the same man that I interviewed. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's not the, not the face he put on for me, but, you know, literally just hearing his answers and the maturity that he was coming through, I was impressed. And, uh, you know, I'm certain, you know, as I listen to you guys, you guys grow and, and, probably the reason for the podcast initially was, you know, the, the fitness myths, right? You know, you guys were all about busting yeah. fitness myths and kind of like attacking the industry that was just misleading people, throwing snake oil, and you guys were going to call them out. That's like the, the premise of when we started or when you guys started way back when. Now, and my purpose for, you know, jumping on the podcast is to kind of level up. You know, you guys are fortunate to have the three peers of you and the co-hosts and, and forth with Doug to kind of like keep yourselves on your toes, making sure that everybody's bringing something to the table. In my little area here in Murfreesboro, there's not that many people that are, you know, influencing me in a positive behavior. So, you know, I actually co-host this with a, a, you know, a podcast guy out of California or he's in Colorado now, Dr. Holden McGray. He's actually a professor out of uh, Pepperdine, just retired this year. So I'm able to help level up myself with him, but also, you know, on the, on the hunt for some good interviews and going through and just trying to bring that elevation up. So who was, if you were to name one top two or three, uh, you know, fitness people that you recommend that really changed you and your views or just brought you to that next level? Yeah. So um, we've had some incredible interviews on the podcast. Uh, Tom Bilyeu was phenomenal talking to him about motivation and business and Mike Matthews. We've had him on the podcast. He's a good friend of ours. He um, illuminated a lot about internet marketing, building your business uh, through, you know, through that space spiritually wise from interviewing Bishop Barron. Uh, Bishop Barron is a, is, a, is a Catholic bishop. He's actually got quite a presence on, uh, on new media, so on the internet. He takes a different approach than traditional Catholicism. He is open to any question. We'll talk about any topic. And he talks a lot about current events. The wisdom that came out of him when we interviewed him was, to me, was just spectacular. And it started a, a spiritual growth journey for me um, and really understanding the value of, of spiritual health, which I think if you're if you're serious about your health, it kind of takes this path, right? If you're if you're really serious about your health, you start off with workouts, then you know nutrition, then you start looking at stress and sleep and gut health and wellness. Eventually, you start to realize that the sphere of health is massive. Spiritual health is a part of giving us purpose and meaning. I don't think you can improve your spiritual health with non-spiritual means. Awesome. I've definitely, you know, since leaving California, have certainly taken a spiritual journey. If, if you followed my posts, you see that I post a lot more about that kind of thing. I was in like, you know, the current state, you know, between my 30s, early 25s to, you know, mid 30s, I was in this like Craigism. I left college. I went to like a religion, school, a Sacred Heart University, took an RS 101 course. And in that, I kind of learned about all these other religions. And I kind of pushed away from Catholicism at the time. It wasn't until I had my daughter and then coming over here when I said specifically on my route over here, hey, I'm not going to drink the Kool-Aid. These people are crazy, um, you know, because I saw <laughs> people get like baptized, rebaptized and all this stuff. And I was just like not having it. But I uh, started listening to the church that I go to right now, this Christian church with Pastor Allen, World Outreach, and uh, started reading the Bible. And it didn't make any sense to me until literally I started reading the Bible. So I was able to get like my own worldview of it. 
Um, so then just interpreting the words. I was also joining this like Bible study later on after I kind of, you know, dove in. One thing my pastor said, which, which you just mentioned um, about, you know, that spirituality kind of comes to life was just because the science, you know, can prove many things that it can prove, right? Uh, there is certain things that we lack as humans, right? For example, like a dog whistle, we can't hear that with our own ears. Bacteria through a microscope, you need something to actually see that. Um, you know, so like our senses, the five senses that we have are limited in exposure. So if those things are limited in exposure, what makes you think that there's not a spirit sitting next to me right now or anywhere else or around you? So like, you know, we're so quick to say, oh, well, we can't see it, we can't feel it, we can't touch it, we can't hear it, etc. Then it doesn't exist. But uh, I just proved that there's many things that are currently around us every single day that we don't have the, you know, the knowledge that it even is, exists in it, right? Yeah, I took, so my path was even, was even different than that. I'm a big science guy, right? Love science. I love the scientific process. Also on the side, I'm a huge economics and politics nerd. And I love the history of both of those things. And one thing that I thought kind of dawned on me, so I'm a huge supporter. I'm a huge believer in the concept of liberty and freedom. I think that idea has led to the most equal societies in terms of opportunity, the most charitable societies. It's led to the most progress of any type of, of government or idea that we've had in terms of how to structure society. Can't really argue that. It's, it's obvious, right? Free societies just work better generally. But if you take a step back, most of human history, it wasn't like that. There were kings and queens and peasants. Nobody would think that every single person had inalienable rights. Who would have done that? What king would have come out and said, oh, by the way, everybody, we all have the same inalienable rights. Nobody would have said that. Nobody would have given that up. It's such a radical, crazy, insane concept. Well, that concept came from the Judeo-Christian religions that literally say man was made in the form of God. Uh, therefore, all of us have these inalienable rights. And this is one of the foundations of this concept of liberty. Because back in the day, I was atheist, Craig. I was, I was a hardcore atheist. And I remember getting into this and looking at it and going, where did this crazy idea come from? When George Washington, you know, when we won the Revolutionary War, they, they wanted to make him king. And he said, no. He said, no, I don't want to be king. I, have the, I believe in this idea of liberty. And now, of course, and we can get into this, it wasn't expected fully, but this idea is actually what's led to the progress of America. Nonetheless, even the way it was expressed back then was crazy and radical. You're talking about a world full of rulers and kings and queens, and here is somebody who just won the Revolutionary War, and they said, no, we, want, we like this concept of, of liberty. Wh why would he do that? He had the, 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 all this power in the, in the palm of his hand, and he gave it up. And it's because this concept that came from the Judeo-Christian religions, in, in particular from Christianity, and so as an atheist, I looked at it and I said, I could not deny the value of that. Like, that's incredible value. You know, and I, I still didn't believe it in, in, the, in the esoteric sense, but that opened my mind, at least, to the wisdom that's found in there. And, you know, here's the thing. And, and again, this is just, I think the downfall of humanity is we're so smart. So we become so arrogant that we find it a very effective tool like science, very, very powerful tool. It's, it's, it does a lot for us. But we take that tool and then we worship it. And we think that we believe that scientific truths equal truths across the board. Well, that, that's not true. Artistic truth is not scientific truth. I can look at something and find tremendous artistic value. And sure, scientifically, you can look at the chemicals that are increasing my brain. And, but you can't explain why I find artistic value in something and why someone else may not, right? There's artistic truth, right? There's poetry, there's uh, love, and there's also spiritual truth. 
You cannot gain spiritual wisdom through a tool like science. It just doesn't work. Just like I can't gain scientific truth through spiritual truth. I'm not going to be able to explain why atoms operate in a particular way, or I can't explain string theory through spiritual truth. But when I, if I want spiritual wisdom and health, I don't go to science. So I think we need to stop being so arrogant that we know everything and stop for a second and say, okay, this wisdom exists and it's lasted for a long time. Maybe we should pause and say, why is this lasting? it so long. Let me just at least be open-minded and you'll be surprised when you're open-minded how you can grow and what you can learn. Well said, man. Well, that, let's bring it that to the topics at hand today. So, you know, we have BLM, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, you have the Marxist, uh, you know, ideologies and all these different things. So like, why is that having a resurgence today? And let's pick one of them. So BLM, Right now, I'm sure you're you're well versed in you know their about statement and what they're looking for, what they're trying to do. In their about statement, they're they're a lot less about Black Lives Matter per se, and a lot more about the LGBTQ too, and all those other things because the founders you know have this um, you know history. You know, one of them's a lesbian. I'm not sure the you know the whole story with that, but like let's get into that a little bit because every time there's something going on, there's this BLM movement that's going on in they're very conflicted. So talk to me about your experience right now with probably the media that you're watching, or maybe even any experiences that you've had with some folks or or conversations that you've had with BLM. Okay, so uh, two things. Number one, I firmly believe that as long as people do not hurt anybody or steal property or damage people's property, that they should be able to live the way that they live. And I am a firm believer in uh, judging people as individuals and, and by their character. Okay. So that's my personal belief. Now the sentiment, Black Lives Matter, not the organization, the, the sentence Black Lives Matter is obvious to me. I don't think you can argue that. Of course, Black Lives Matter. That's inarguable. Okay. Now that's separate from the organization, Black Lives Matter. When you examine the organization and what they stand for and what they're pushing for and their philosophy, it's clearly a Marxist philosophy. Okay, so for people who aren't super familiar with Marxist ideologies or philosophies, it's a worldview that says that everything is either made up of oppressors or oppressed, that everything is about power. It's a worldview that is collectivist. You are looking at people and rather than looking at them as individuals, what's more important is their group identity. Uh, workers, it could be the, the business owners in, in Soviet, you know, Russia, they would, uh, I can't remember the term they use for that. So it's like the bourgeois, right? Or or the the ruling class, the working class, yeah. men, women, yeah. any group, right? Black, white, gay and lesbian, straight, cisgender, transgender, whatever. It's this philosophy that collectivizes people and gives more value to the group identity than individual identity. Historically, here's the, this is objective now. If you're watching and listening and you're a, a, a Marxist or a communist, you cannot argue the following fact. Anytime Marxist philosophies have been applied, it's resulted in terrible tyranny, death, and destruction. It does not work, period, end of story. And so the question arises, why the hell does this philosophy still exist? Why is it still around? I mean, look at Venezuela, a, an oil-rich country that now is in ruins because of these philosophies. Look at North Korea versus South Korea. Dark. Look what happened to the Soviet Union. Look what happened to, you look at East Germany versus West Germany before the Berlin Wall came down. You had obvious oppression, obvious tyranny. You can have all the criticisms you want about inequalities in America and how things aren't perfect, but uh, capitalism applied poorly outperforms communism or Marxism applied in the most perfect ways. This is just a fact, objective, but why the hell does this philosophy exist? Here's why it's alluring. Number one, it's got the religious allure 
of original sin. Now, original sin comes from, you know, we know this from the Christian religion. Original sin meaning, you know, Adam and Eve had this whatever, we're all flawed. However, in the Christian teaching, our job is to continue to try, realize that we're flawed, but also try to be better people. That original sin philosophy in Marxism or in BLM philosophy is saying, I am responsible for the sins of my ancestors. I am white. Therefore, even if I'm not racist, even if I'm not whatever, because I am white, I'm a part of this terrible whatever. And that is now putting me in this group. And if you're black, you are oppressed simply because you are part of this group and we're part of this system. And that original sin has got that religious power behind it. It also gives power to people through feeling like victims. When you look at uh, what's happening right now, there's a lot of power in feeling like a victim. You'll see people actually say, you can't talk because you're privileged or you're more, more privileged than me. My opinion matters more than you. So now I am deriving power through feeling like a victim. It also causes resentment in other people and it can cause superiority. It's funny because it's the same ideology that white supremacists have. It's the same ideology. It's just different. White supremacists say, I'm superior because I'm white. You're inferior because you're black. The BLM Marxist philosophy says, you are privileged because you're white and I am underprivileged because I'm black. Different words, same philosophy. So that's what's kind of bubbling up right now. And the thing with the Marxist philosophies is they always take advantage of real issues. Are there issues of historic issues of racism in the country? And do we still deal with them? Issues of racism or sexism or other isms in the country? Of course we do. This is always going to be an issue. I don't think it'll ever change. I'll say historically, Sal, but I don't think it's systemic, which is the next thing I want to talk about also. No, I don't think it's systemic. That's different. I think that you have individual cases. You have people, maybe groups of people, but the system is not designed and based off of racism and sexism and, and these isms. The, the law is very plain. The only laws that have race explicitly put in them are affirmative action laws or hate crime laws. Those are actually the only racist and sexist laws that we have. Now, can the outcomes be different based off of race? We can make that argument, maybe, but the numbers actually show probably not, or if there's an effect, it's very, very small. But does racism exist in the world? Yeah, it yeah, does. I so what Marxists do is they, they go in there and they take advantage of this. And if you look at Marxist playbook, every time there's been a Marxist revolution, they take a group, they manipulate that group, they take advantage of them. Once they gain power, the first group that they execute is the group that they originally took advantage of. Pay attention to history. This is what happens every time. If there was a Marxist BLM revolution in America, you can pretty much guarantee the BLM organization will be the first ones to be thrown in the gulags once they're used, essentially. Yeah. So that's my belief. Yeah. The BLM official movement is a Marxist movement. It is terrible for black people, terrible for white people, terrible for freedom, terrible for liberty, horrible organization. It's obvious what they're doing now. The sentiment, Black Lives Matter, of course, their lives matter. People and humans definitely matter. And I think people should be treated as individuals. And that's really the big battle, Craig, with this is do we defend and fight for this concept of individualism, this individual liberty that you as an individual are complex person, you're responsible for your actions, your character, and largely responsible for the outcomes of your life, or at least take, take power and responsibility over those things? Or do we want to believe in the collectivist philosophy where group matters more than the individual? And that means we got to kill the few to save the many, just like they do in China or they did in the Soviet Union. But those are the two competing philosophies. Here's the thing, you know, they talk about slavery. Uh, America had slavery and so did the West. And yes, so did the whole world. It's existed in, on every continent since the beginning of time. But nobody wants to talk about who ended slavery. 
who ended slavery en masse was the West. What was the philosophy that pushed that forward? It was this concept of individual liberty. What was the concept that gave women the right to vote? Individual liberty. What was the concept that ended segregation? Individual liberty. So although we were not perfect, and I still think we're not perfect, this concept is worth fighting for because it's what continues to push us to progress and grow and be better than we were yesterday. And so it's definitely worth fighting for. There's a lot to chew on there. So we started off talking about BLM, the Marxist, and then he actually touched on libertarianism, right? I believe that's more the philosophy. I think that Adam said he stands behind. I'm definitely in the middle of all this. Um, You know, I can't say I'm right, left, middle. I like a little piece of each of these things. And so as I was doing my deep dive yesterday, Marxist, one thing they're all about, and I think which is attracting like the Marxist is this laissez-faire way of uh, floating around and just having multiple opportunities as individuals where there's no big government. But what you just described before in many of these Marxist regimes, Russia, you know, uh, the South Americas where there was d- different issues, China and these communism countries where it all stems from is that you give the power to the people and they just kind of like nurture their own little village, is which is what I'm hearing and definitely what you could see about their about station. Like, we're basically like destroy the nuclear family, we're going to communicate rule, etc. But they forget that the government does exist in those situations. And the government's very powerful in those situations. Although the Marxist says the government's just there to kind of make sure that you're defended, etc. And the people rule, um, to, to my understanding of it. So, you know, they're definitely getting their, their hairs crossed, but I definitely think the, the organization itself has its own polar beliefs. And then the people that follow Black Lives Matter, they're not educated. They don't know. And they're just following a ga- around the sentiment for the most part when you actually interview these folks. And, you know, they're very misled. So they're pushing this agenda and uh, they're bringing some steam behind it. What that now has done is now let these Antifa folks, you know, join along in this bandwagon. So now you have these two parties, Antifa and BLM, you know, now making these power moves around, you know, these liberal, face it, these cities and different things and causing havoc. So let's get into Antifa and what they're all about. If you have that knowledge, I was looking to get one of these guys on the podcast at one point and just talk it up. I'm not sure if you had a chance to do that. Now, Antifa stands for anti-fascist, which I find just absolutely hilarious because all of their methods, the way that they try to spread their message, the way that they silence people and use violence and force is fascist. They're not anti-fascist. You know what's anti-fascist? Liberty, freedom, They are anti-capitalism. They are anti-Western values. You know, it's like buying a breakfast cereal for kids at the store and it says healthy on it. Oh, this is healthy. No, it's not. Just because it says it's healthy doesn't mean it's healthy. Okay. Just because they say they're anti-fascist doesn't mean that they're anti-fascist. If anything, they're pro-fascist. They're they're pro-destroy the system and replace it with a more tyrannical, powerful system. So funny to me that when Marxists say that we're all for the people, you know, the people ruling or whatever. What? Okay, show me where that's ever happened because what you end up having is a very strong central government Mm. that tells you for the better of the masses, right? For the better of the people, what you can read, what you can say, what you can't say, if you can defend yourself, what property you can own. I mean, in China, they have a social credit system that the government owns that you say the wrong thing. If you criticize the government, now you can't fly and you can't travel. You keep pushing it. Now we throw you in a re-education camp. It's absolutely crazy and insane to me. Freedom of speech is under attack like I've never seen before. They're all about censoring hate speech because it's so evil and bad. And freedom of speech exists specifically to, to protect unpopular speech. Popular speech doesn't need protecting. It exists explicitly to protect speech that is probably unpopular. Now in that is probably going to be speech that I'm not going to like. It's going to be some hate speech, Mm -hmm. but really what it's to protect Mm -hmm. is for me to criticize the government, to protest, to do all these different things. It's insane to me that these idiots want to censor speech because we go down that path. They're going to be next. 
they're already doing it. You're absolutely right. I think what you're seeing is a lot of ignorant, misguided people who don't realize that they're literally building their own coffin. And if they get what they want, they're the first ones to be, you know, to be killed or tyrannized under. It's insane to me. Yeah. I mean, what he's referencing, guys, is social media, Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitter, you know, putting these restrictions or these fact labels and different things upon, you know, speech. And what he's making a great point is if you have just one sided argument, then you're going to have a very biased view. And then it's like monopolizing the airwaves or the media. And it's dangerous right now. You're hearing Trump say, you know, this is fake media. And he's not wrong when you when you you dive into some of these, you know, media stations. So, I watch Fox. Um, I watch some other, you know, different channels. I think The Hill is a really good one because they have a guy and a girl on there where they um, have both sides of the argument and they're pretty fair about it. But if you watch a CNN or, you know, a CBC, CBS and all these other stations, you're literally like watching two different planets. It's, it's like amazing. And, you know, I do it on purpose because I want to kind of see what others are so upset about and then why they're mad over here, then why they're mad over here. You're just amazed after you come out of it. But <laughs> what are your thoughts? Do you, do you watch the news? Like I've been, I've been very affected by this for the last couple months. I'm trying to get myself out of it. Yeah, I do the same thing. So the news thrives off of your emotion. So fear, empathy can be one that they can manipulate as well. If you think you're doing something for good reasons, even though it's bad results, oftentimes people stick to their guns. So that's like, again, like you see people donating money to an organization like Black Lives Matter, not knowing, for example, that it's a, a Marxist organization, but they feel good about it, right? Because they're doing something or whatever. But what I like to do is I like to toggle between CNN and Fox, mainly because I like to see what the narratives are. So what are the narratives from the Republican Party? What are they pushing? What are the narratives from the Democrat Party? What are they pushing? I also like to study economics. Economics is a bit more black and white. Mm -hmm. Regardless of the narrative, if I see Trump, for example, pushing a tariff increase on China because he's trying to bring back jobs, right? I know economically speaking, he's just going to make products more expensive. It's a tax. It's another tax on all of our products. No different than if the government taxed all of us and then decided to give it to American companies as a subsidy. It's the same thing. I know that when I see people promoting a, a new law that's going to help the poor by raising the minimum wage, I know that's going to price people out of the market. It's going to mm -hmm. cause more unemployment. So economics really helps you see through a lot of that. I also look at libertarian news sources. Uh, Reason is good. The Foundation for Economic Education, I think it's called FEE, is really good. But you got to go back between all of them and then also check yourself. I am definitely not above being manipulated and being fearful into believing a particular thing. And so we all got to be a little bit careful of that. You know, it's, it's interesting that we have two parties that run everything and have for a long time. And you'll never see the two parties work together better than when a third party poses a threat. And they, all of a sudden they become organized to push that third party out. You know, both parties have very similar sponsors. I will say this right now, and this is for the current climate. Okay, so we're talking 2020 right now. The right has gotten a lot of things fixed. You know, in the past, the right was very much the hawkish kind of pro-war party. This was during the era of Bush. The left was a little bit more of the pro-peace party. In the past, the right was very pro-war on drugs, hard sentences for, you know, smoking a joint. They were anti-allowing people to legally marry if they're both the same sex. For these reasons of the past, I was against. Today, the right doesn't really stand for those things anymore. They're actually, by action, more pro-peace than the left, which is crazy. There's lots of people in the Republican Party now that talk about legalizing marijuana. And it's not that I want everybody to smoke pot, but I see the, the negatives of the way it's been regulated and throwing people in jail for hurting themselves and really not hurting anybody else. They're not, you know, no longer trying to ban gay marriage. So that's, that's cool with me. The left has gone crazy. They've gone extreme. 
they had an open socialist, you know, running for office. Bernie Sanders literally calls himself a democratic socialist, which is honestly just putting balloons on socialism. It's tyranny of the majority. So you could have one person tell you what you need to do, or you could have a majority tell everybody what they need to do. And if you're not in that majority, you're totally screwed. That's democratic socialism for it. It's it's still tyrannical. So they had an open socialist was one of the main guys in the primaries. They have a Green New Deal, which a lot of them signed off on, which is nothing. It's not the Green New Deal. It's actually, if passed, would be one of the most destructive things, one of the most tyrannical, destructive things we could ever possibly. It's dreamland. It's like no planes in 10 years and no cars in you know 10 years and off all you know oil, in which case we don't, none of us would have energy, it would cause massive death. People on the borderline of poverty would be in severe poverty. Just terrible, terrible policies. Now the left is pushing that. They're pro- speech censorship, which is insane to me. They used to be the pro-free speech party. The left has gone really far. At one, you know, back in the day, Craig, I would agree half the time with the left and half the time with the right. These days, I agree with the right sometimes. I almost never agree with the left right now. It's crazy. And if I debate anybody online over politics or policy, if I'm debating a conservative, they're talking with me. We're debating. Yeah. When I get in, when I get into a debate with a liberal these days, I'm called racist or sexist. It's all or, emotions. Or oh man, it's it's crazy to me. I don't know what the hell happened, but the left has definitely gone insane old land. And so today, that's the side I fear. They're the ones that have the, the most power to cause the most damage. I am not afraid of you know uh, of the extreme right. They don't really have much power right now. Mm. I mean, that could all change, of course. I mean, if the extreme left pushes hard enough, we may see a reaction from the extreme right draped in patriotism it might might be some kind of nationalism type uh you know movement but we it's not when it's not happening now right now the extreme left is just insane right and i want to i want to talk to that because you just mentioned something about nationalism and most often that means like you know the kkk and and like these other groups that get associated with when is it wrong to be pro-america today it's fashionable to be against america it's fashionable to like hate your country which is just ridiculous the other day for example i sported a amendment two jersey usa on the front and two on the back and i got a lot of backlash i got a lot of likes but i got a lot of unfollows i think i lost a couple hundred followers uh just from that one post (laughs) and just (laughs) in the herd (laughs) it was just amazing i got messages after messages after messages of people just be like unfollowing like it's this telephone tough guy mentality that we're kind of talking about where you're coming from with these conversations that are having in all emotions so back in the day you you had to face your accuser in person so all these things didn't happen so maybe they were just having these conversations by themselves in their own head and now they just got a chance to spew it but this is now causing emotion and so like when you're saying having conversations with the left I put that other post the other day that you started commenting on and kind of how we, you know, talked about like jumping on this podcast was uh, sell me on Trump without mentioning Biden and then sell me on Biden without mentioning Trump. I did it both ways. And (laughs) it was amazing to see the, you know, for Trump had all their sources, their stats and, and pretty good arguments. And then it was like the, you know, against Trump was all emotion. You know, it was just all emotion. He's not a good person. He's not a good character, et cetera. And I don't love Trump. I'm not a big Trumper. Like I'm not a big, you know, fanboy. A lot of these people are. I just think he's uh, he's a little crude. He could be a little bit more polished. He's not a good talker and he's not a good uniter, but he's done a lot of good for the country and I'm cool with that. And so like, I think any good American, it's called being a citizen. And what, is, what does that mean? That's where I want to push this agenda in the future. Like what I'm going to be about is to be the best citizen I can because that's yeah. agnostic to who's a president. And that's that's just about your country and what you can do for your countrymen, et cetera. So like, you know, this is, this is the state we live in right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. So there's two things I want to comment on that. Number one, the reason why you see such vitriol and hate coming from 
And it happens on both sides, but I'm telling you right now, being someone who's been in the middle often, why I think we see so much vitriol from the left is because the rhetoric that they're promoting is it's different than in the past. Policies are wrong. These aren't good policies. Our policies are better. What's happening right now is not that. What's happening right now is you're racist, you're evil, you're sexist, you're bad. Why would you debate with an evil person? If Hitler's in front of me, I'm not going to debate with it. You want to beat him up, right? He killed lots of people. Well, if the opposing side, if you're not debating their ideas and it's just about them being sick, these terrible people, these bigots, it's not worth you discussing anything with them. They're all bad people. So that's what's happened. So nobody wants to discuss policy. Okay, let's talk about minimum wage laws or let's talk about health care or school choice. Nobody wants to debate that. It's like, oh, you're on that side. You're an evil person. You can't have it. This is insane. It's extremism. And now here's the other comment. You asked about what does it mean to be supportive or to be an American? Okay. For me, and I think this is important for a lot of people. I think this is a way that people should look at this, but this is for me. Okay. It's my opinion. When I am very, very proud of the American philosophy and ideals, that does not mean I am always supportive of the American government or the American policy. Oftentimes, American policy ran counter to American ideals. If you look at the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, it obviously was not applied properly early on. We had slaves. Women couldn't vote. Later on, we had segregation. That is not the expression of the American ideal. In that case, I could be very proud of American ideals, but be anti these laws that are Mm -hmm. obviously wrong. So a true patriot, an American, is somebody that looks at those ideals and strives to always express those ideals because they're good ideals. They're based in truth. They've led us to progress in meaningful ways and they've led to the most prosperous country and the most charitable country of all time. And I like to say that people don't think they don't know that, but America is the most charitable, both in time spent volunteering and in money voluntarily given away and per capita. And it's because we have these incredible ideals. I'm a first-generation American. I'm the product of immigrants. My grandfather, my father, they came here for the ideals of America, which was opportunity, liberty, less regulation, smaller government. I am responsible for my life. Please get out of my way. Allow me to bear the fruits of my own labor. Allow me to keep the fruits of my labor. Although all of us are so different because it's it's the most diverse country in the world. We had essentially open border. When my grandfather first came here as a young boy, it wasn't hard to come ashore and become an American. You just had to show up. You sign your name and you're here. And yet this country flourished. And you think to yourself, how's that possible? So diverse. Now, before people say, oh, that was all white Europeans, it's a very ignorant thing to say. Consider Europe went to war with itself twice. We had two world wars caused by Europeans. So yeah, they were all white, but they're all very different. Germans, Italians, French, all the European nations, very different. You had all these immigrants, Irish, Italian, French, super different beliefs, super different cultures. And yet they all got along and worked together and built this incredible country. How is that possible? All of them believed in one common ideal, which was the concept of liberty. They all came here wanting and respecting opportunity and responsibility. You got the Jewish neighborhood over here, the Italian neighborhood over here, the Irish neighborhood over here. They start to work together. That's how markets work. 
I'll trade with you. You trade with me. We buy your products. Before you know it, we're becoming friends. Before you know it, our kids get married. Before you know it, we become an integrated society. That's the philosophy that I believe to be American and that I'm very proud of and that I'll always fight for. Now, sometimes that means I'm against maybe our policies. Sometimes that means our government's going to go against those ideals. That's what it means to be American, in my opinion. Now, nationalism is different. Nationalism is about America, the country, America, the government. That means not trading with other countries because we need to protect America first. Don't burn the American flag. We're going to throw you in jail for that. Don't say things that are against America. You must stand up for the Pledge of Allegiance. If you don't, we'll throw you in jail or we'll fine you. That's what nationalism is. It's another form of tyranny. You don't want to go down that path. Now, when I see someone burn the flag, pisses me off. I think they're an idiot. But if they own that flag, it's their property to burn. Don't think they should be thrown in jail. I think we should trade and work with other countries just like I'd work with other people. I think that's a great way to encourage world peace. We're far less likely to go to war with countries that we trade a lot openly with. It's the ideals and the philosophy. It's not necessarily the country and the government. That's nationalism. If you go down that path long enough, then you do become fascist. So I like your definition of it. I like where you're going with it. I do have some comments on like, you know, the America for country, you know, all America. For example, we just had COVID-19. And we just saw that we were relying on China and some other folks to bail us out in situations where they have medical supplies, PPE, all these different things that we're looking for, um, you know, that we ship in. And I don't think it's wrong to say we should have our own supplies. We should basically, if, when we have unemployment in this country, that's a, that, you know, to me, that's a problem because, you know, we have all the means, we have all the money, we're giving money to all these different countries. Why are we not looking at our country first and saying, let's fix all these issues here? So for me, I like the policies that are currently in place today that are focusing on America and focusing on our jobs, our borders and things of that nature to make this country safe and secure. So for me, that is, that's a positive. You know, I, I know some folks think that's negative. That's more fascism. But I think that we're such a rich nation. We have a lot of things going for us. And we're very generous, like you mentioned early on, where there's a lot of money going out the door. I think Trump's organization right now has done a good job at nipping some of this excess bleeding that we're giving just because other policies have been in place for years and nobody wants to buck the system. How much money can we save and actually do good in this country by, you know, not giving to all these other countries when it's not our responsibility in the first place? Yeah, well, there's a false equivalency there with that, with the argument that's made around that. So talking about having borders, that's a whole different conversation. And I do think a country should have, especially if they have public services. So borders is a whole different topic. But as far as the argument about protecting American jobs, first off, I don't see anything wrong with stocking up on supplies and making sure in cases of emergency that we can take care of ourselves. I just think that's smart. But as far as trade is concerned, here's the deal. Let's say we want tires. Americans want to buy tires for their car. American consumers make the decision to buy the, the tires based off of quality, cost, efficiency. That determines their purchasing price. That's not a bad thing. If we put a tariff, which is a tax, on imported tires, which forces people to buy American tires, all you're doing is you're raising the cost of tires for everybody. If Americans really want to buy American products, then they'll just buy American product. Raising the price of something else to force people is no different than if I said that it just sold differently. It just sounds more appealing. It's no different than me saying this, hey, America, we need to support more Americans. We're going to tax everybody an additional 10% from your income and give that money to American companies or give it to American workers. Now, if you hear that, you're gonna be like, now you're not. You're not going to tax me. 
They're doing it anyways, uh, Sal, you know, you know, with all these things that they're giving out, these handouts, where does this money come from? I know we're borrowing against this like inflated balloon, but I mean, they're, they're doing that anyway. My argument to that is that we're trading against these other countries that have such a low minimum wage and this almost slave labor that currently still exists. China and these other factories in India and all these other places where the, the relative income is so low that they've priced our American people in our way of life out of business by making such a product, whether it's as good or not. And I know the capitalist society will say, you know, let price determine, let quality determine, and, and just let the market determine itself. But I'm not opposed to actually saying, okay, if we have this quality of life, this, this thing that we're used to in America, the citizenship that we have bought into, the security, the defense, the structure, the law and order that we're, we're accustomed to having, then there's a cause and a, an effect to that. So by having all these things, yes, the price of all these things must go up. The cost of uh, minimum wage must go up and all these things and compared to these other very communistic countries that you pay people peanuts and they live in these terrible things. So by us essentially supporting that, are we not also supporting, you know, their belief system, their, the way that they're paying their people, right? It's not so black and white is I guess what I'm saying. No, of course not. So there's a couple of things I want to touch on that. Number one, there's a reason why the odds that will ever go to full scale war with China are minuscule compared yeah. to the odds that we were going to go to war with the Soviet Union. People today, especially people younger than the age of 30, have no idea how close we came to thermonuclear global destruction. There were several instances where we literally were, the trigger was ready to be pulled. The reason why the odds of that happening with China are far smaller is because China goes down, we crush our economy. We go down, their economy's crushed. We trade heavily with them. There's many American companies that are based out of there or have bases there, vice versa. Free trade is one of the best Best methods for peace ever in the history of the world. If you and I live on an island and we hate each other, but you got the fish and I got the fruit, we're going to learn to work together so we could trade with each other. So if you want world peace, number one, that's the best thing. Now, does that come with certain caveats? Well, yeah. Okay. Sure. We're going to be supporting some of the communist philosophies if we're employing people over there. But I would also argue we're opening them up or at least opening up those people to American ideals. Chinese people are are far more aware of American ways of life. And I'll argue that as their quality of life increases, the odds that the Chinese communist government's going to be able to keep their thumb on the people is going to continue to decrease. This is what happened in the Soviet Union where people were thirsty for freedom. They were thirsty for free speech. Look what's happening in Hong Kong right now. Now, back to one of the comments you made about slave labor. People don't ask this question. They like to look at something and say, that's terrible, but they never ask what the alternative is. Right. When you look at countries that have terrible, by our standards, factories, terrible conditions, people working incredible hours. Yes, that looks bad by our standards, but let's ask what is the alternative? If that did not exist, what would those people be doing? Mm -hmm. Oftentimes it's children selling their bodies, selling drugs or extreme poverty. Also look at America a hundred years ago. That's how we were. We were the same way. Look where we're at now. now. As far as these manufacturing jobs are concerned, there's nothing wrong with people overseas doing those jobs for us because we benefit from the products, from the efficiency. Remember, money represents resources. It's not just paper. Money represents labor, efficiency, asset. So if we can allocate resources better, the world benefits. If we spend more because it's an American, we are wasting resources that can be used for capital investment and innovation, which innovation is what humans do best. That's how we solve all of our problems. Now, here's what it ends up looking like. Here's the world. You have America who led the world in the industrial revolution along with other Western nations. We moved out of certain ways of living. Now we are providing work for these countries over here. You know, so what does that mean? That just means 
means that those jobs aren't here anymore. There's nothing wrong with that. But guess what's going to happen in 20, 30 years? Those jobs are going to move. Now you see China outsourcing to Vietnam, outsourcing to other countries, and everything gets elevated. But us as consumers continue to benefit. Look, globalization exploded in the 20th century, especially with the fall of the Iron Curtain, right? The fall of the Soviet Union. The whole world as a whole liberalized their markets, opened up their markets. What's the result of that? The largest migration that the world has ever seen. We're seeing this start to happen. And by isolating ourselves, all we're going to do is slow down our innovation and allocate resources in ways that are inefficient. We're going to slow down that progress and we're going to further isolate ourselves, potentially contributing to more increased risk of conflict with other countries. I mean, look at the tension between us and China now. And I know the argument with, you know, that people say that Trump is using it as a way to leverage and bargain. And maybe that's true, but I guarantee you our relationship with China is way worse than it was before. So it only hurts us. It feels better, but it's not. Okay. So let's take a look at Trump, for example, and I'm going to get off this topic. Trump in China right now, I think there was some good relationships and things that he'd done. Look at the North Korea stuff that he was doing and some of the, you know, he's now nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, you know, with some of the right. stuff he's doing at the UAE and, um, you know, Saudi Arabia and the, and the peace that he's got going in the Middle East a little bit. You know, I've been to China. I've been to China three times, actually, in the last five years. It's crazy out there. You need a VPN to basically bypass the internet to get any information that would make sense in America or all these other things. So it's heavily regulated. If you have not been there, it's an amazing thing to not have access to information. So they're definitely being seen whatever the government wants them to be seen. And they're being watched and they're being regulated and they're being, you know, if they can't talk. So I, I know you mentioned that way early on. But at this point in time, if we're trading, you know, with these countries and we're going to be subject to the way or the cost of their labor and, you know, use it in a capitalistic form. And if we didn't put tariffs on, what would the unemployment in this country look like? You're in California. You guys have the highest unemployment rate, if I'm not mistaken, in the United States. You guys also pay, I think, close to like 30% of like the, the United States is, uh, you call it the GDP. What, what do you think that number looks like if we don't propose these tariffs and things and actually talk about protecting American jobs, which I think it's the responsibility of our government and elected officials to actually protect those uh, jobs, not just provide free capitalist society where the best price, best product wins, but actually have some protections in place, whether it costs us a little bit more money or not. I think that we as Americans and the, the liberties that we actually do have, as far as our military defense and all these other things that we're paying for with our money, with our taxes, with these things that we're contributing, and that's provided you're actually contributing. There's a whole other argument to the people that aren't contributing anything. What do you think that looks like? No, that, so here's one of the problems with unemployment. We'll pass a policy and then we'll say, see, unemployment went down or see, unemployment went up. I'll give you an example. You might have a city that increases their minimum wage up to $12 an hour and then they track unemployment and unemployment goes down 0.2%. And they'll be like, look, unemployment went down. I told you raising the minimum wage wouldn't increase unemployment. The problem with that is we don't know how many jobs would have been added had that never happened. Our unemployment rates going down is not the result of this tariff war. The unemployment going down is a result of Trump's administration dramatically deregulating the market. This is the part that really I really support and that he did phenomenal. They passed a policy that said for every regulation that's added, you have to cut out two regulations. So in four years, the Trump administration cut more regulations than the Reagan administration did in eight years. When you cut regulation, you open the doors for business to innovate and to create new opportunities and jobs. That is what is contributed to low unemployment, not the tariffs. If anything, the tariffs are going to make it harder
harder because it can increase the cost of doing business because we're being taxed through a way that looks nice and is covered in an American flag, but it's just paying more money for products that you might or might not have chosen to begin with. So it's not the tariffs that made the jobs grow here. It's the cutting of the regulations that improved innovation and caused companies to grow and new companies to sprout up. That's what happened. Here's the thing. You want to cut unemployment? Here's a couple things you can do. Very easy. Cut regulations way the hell down. The regulations that exist to start certain businesses or to run businesses in many ways are comical. Let's say you want to do hair braiding in New York City. You just want to open up a place where you just braid hair. Well, the laws there say that you need to have four barbershop sinks and this kind of a bathroom. Why? Because they pass these silly laws that protect barbershops from competition. So that's number one, cut regulations. Number two, eliminate minimum wage. Get rid of, there, there should be no price fixing. The market should determine the price. Now, what will that do? Definitely some people are going to work less than minimum wage. Who are these people? These are people that are currently priced out of the market. So let's just say minimum wage just for a round number was $10. That's the price fixing. Well, if your skills and your resume is worth less than $10 an hour, guess what you are? Unemployable. If you have a felony, you have no skills, and you go to a, a fast food place, and they look at that on your resume, and they say, nah, man, I'm not going to hire you for 10 bucks an hour. But what if you could do this? What if you said, look, pay me 4 bucks an hour. Let me prove to you that I'm a good worker. Let me show you what I can do. Let me build some skills here, and you can pay me 4 bucks an hour. Well, now you can compete against a $10 an hour guy who maybe doesn't have a felony and has more skills. Now the employer's going to be like, hmm, you know what? I think I'll save 6 bucks an hour and give this person an opportunity. No minimum wage means you are employable. Now you can negotiate. It's funny because minimum wage laws promise to help the poor. Those are the very people that it hurts. You are pricing them out of the market. Now let's see what can happen, what people can work for, how they can build their skills, allow companies to look at this and leverage it. And of course, there's going to be market pressures, public pressures. I'm sure some companies will try and get away with paying $2 an hour. You know, People come together and protest and say, no, you should pay more. That's another market signal. But you do those two things. You watch minimum wage drop down to almost zero. That's what will happen. At that point, if you're not working, it's because you don't want to. But right now, if your skills are worth less than minimum wage, you're screwed. How can you possibly get hired? So now you're stuck on the dole. You can never build skills. You can never build a resume. Now you're stuck in the system of welfare. Good luck. Good luck getting out of that. It's never going to happen. So those are the two things. Tariffs, they just increase the cost of doing business. Craig, it's literally no different than this. It's no different than if Trump came out and instead of saying, I'm going to raise the cost of imports, it's literally the same thing as him saying, hey, everybody, we're going to start collecting taxes from you and we're going to give that to American companies so they can lower the price of their product. It's no different. I wonder if you'd feel the same if you were in a competitive product with China. You know, when I went out there, we saw factories because we were looking at a watch system for our Metron thing. But if you were in a competitive product with these people that are just going on Amazon and just undercutting the price, cloning these products and doing things, I wonder if that would be something that you would still feel the same way. Let me, let me, let me respond to that real quick, okay. Craig. First of all, I do believe in patent protection and I do believe in our court of law. It does help with capital investment. So if I create really a product- go overseas though. It's all usually well, United that's, States that's based. It's really hard to like defend that over there. You're right. You're right. That's a problem. And I do think that that's something that should be looked at. But let's say aside from that, if I'm a business, of course, I want the US government to come in and protect me. Look, if I owned a taxi, 
I would love for the government to ban Uber. You know how much a taxi medallion cost before Uber hit the scene? It was like a million dollars in New York City because they were limited. So yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I would love it if I'm an American manufacturer. You know, the U.S. government is now making all my competitors more expensive. Yeah, it's going to make me wealthier. But as a consumer, it doesn't benefit anybody. It just makes the same products more expensive. It's a misallocation of resources. And it makes the market less efficient and effective. It's just, uh, it's taking the best out of the market and making it worse. Right. Okay. That, I'll take that. Um, <laughs> you know, what I was saying before is bringing jobs to America. You know, these uh, manufacturers of cars and things in Chicago, there was a bunch of uh, companies up there, Chrysler, and these manufacturing jobs coming back home, getting tax breaks and incentives to come back home. Are you cool with them getting these kickbacks to, you know, bring jobs here? Because it sounds like when I'm listening to you, you're like, yeah, the capitalist rule, right? Like, let quality determine. I'm for that. Don't get me. I'm not saying I'm not for that. But I do think that there are tools in our place when you mentioned a few of them, how to bring unemployment down. But there's also getting priced out of the market with, you know, like you said, labor that just is, you know, as evolution takes place. What do we do with these bodies? What, what do we do with this education thing? And I want to, I'm going to circle back to that because I actually have some solutions. I was on a podcast okay. with another gentleman. Uh, we got into it pretty good. But um, for that, are you for like this kickback for these American companies? I am 100% for cutting regulations in taxes. I think it's insane that you work for, you know, by the way, that's the definition of slavery. You know that, right? Like you work and by force, your labor is taken from you or the fruits of your labor. That's what taxes are. So I'm not an anarchist. Okay. Uh, IRS, if you're listening right now, I pay my taxes. <laughs> But if you're going to cut taxes, go for it. You're letting them keep more of what they earn. Of course, that's not my money that you're taking. You're letting them keep the money that they earn. Now, there was a second part to that question that you had brought up. Let's circle back to that. There was one thing I want to touch on. Talking about price fixing, fixing the price of labor or adding a tariff on something. I'm going to simplify it real quick. Let's say the price of milk. Let's just say I was a politician and I did a phenomenal job of making the case that milk is a staple food. We need milk. Everybody needs milk. It's got good calories. It's got good nutrients. Children need it. Therefore, no company can sell milk for more than $1. And I pass that law you are not allowed to sell milk for more than a dollar. What do you think will happen? There's not going to be any milk. There's going to be shortages of it. No one's going to be able to produce it because resources aren't going to make sense. Now let's look at the reverse. Let's say I was a politician and I said, hey, all these milk farmers, they're America's backbone. These are farmers that need our help. From now on, every gallon of milk is a minimum of $10 to help these farmers. You know what would happen? Surplus of milk and nobody would buy it, right? So prices have to match resources. They have to match efficiency. And when we slap taxes and tariffs on something, we're just skewing the shit out of the market and we're misallocating resources. If we want to progress as a society, we need to allocate our resources as accurately as possible. Otherwise, we're going to skew the markets. I know you guys interviewed somebody about the unemployment and just like the the homeless in in California. Are you seeing that in San Jose now? Are you guys seeing that like where you currently live? Because I know that's definitely a a lower, uh, you would think anyway, uh, you know, something that would happen more prevalently like when we're watching California on the uh, Los Angeles, for example. It's not a money issue. It's not a, a housing issue. It's a, this is a medical issue. This is a mental health issue. When you talk to the experts on homelessness, you find that the vast majority of people who are homeless, people who live on the streets, mm-hmm. have severe mental issues and drug abuse problems. So you're not going to solve that problem with more jobs or better or cheaper housing. The only way to solve that problem is with medical care and help. And also not allowing them to, uh, or at least creating some barriers for them to live that way. So sorry, you can't sleep and live on these public streets. You can't defecate on the street. You can't do drugs. Here's your only alternative. You can go to this medical help program. And then through that, then, you know, maybe you can 
go through a job training program or whatever, but we're not going to solve it with jobs or housing. And California's had such a big problem because we stopped training that way. Yeah, you stopped the law. I mean, you allow them to do all the three things you just mentioned, defecate on the street, take drugs on the street, you know, and just camp out on the street. I mean, you all three of those things are completely legal. Yeah. So that's really the big issue in, in solving that. Uh, that's a mental health problem that I do think there may be some value in some social programs. Like I said, I'm not an anarchist. I do think some social programs are valuable. I think in that case, get paying prisons to have medical health programs that we can send these people to, to become clean. And then maybe repeat offenders then can get punished. So making it not easy to follow that lifestyle. They're they're not just hurting themselves. They're hurting others. They're spreading disease, causing uh, some big problems. And I see it here in San Jose. And San Francisco is the worst. They pass some insane laws. You're doing drugs right on the street and the cop walk right by you. Or you can rob a store if it's under $900. They don't even throw you in jail. I mean, literally they're walking in, taking shit off the shelves, walking around the corner, selling it on the street and nobody's stopping them. It's, it's insane. This is a, a mental health issue that we need to tackle for sure. We had Dr. Drew on the, on yeah, the podcast okay. and he, you know, he talked about this and he made perfect sense. Wow. That's just wild. Like, what do you do if you're a business owner? I mean, are you armed? Are you able to stop these people? Like, I mean, you leave, what, what? you leave, man. These cities that are enacting these, what are currently liberal policies, they're so stupid. You look at Seattle, Portland, maybe San Francisco to some extent, uh, New York City, they're allowing people to loot, riot, destroy property. They're decreasing police. They're allowing homeless people to do drugs on the street, defecate on the street, live on the street. What they're doing is they're, they're literally destroying their cities for the next next few decades because here's what happens. Businesses leave. Companies don't want to invest there. Nobody wants to open a store. In mm-hmm. San Francisco's vacancies right now has gone through the roof because of this. Oh, I could imagine. So now businesses leave. Now you have a hellhole. Now you've got permanent poverty. Look at Detroit. Decades ago was like an ama- amazing American city. Automobile manufacturing. They had mm-hmm. law and order. It was a minority dominant city but it was extremely vibrant and successful. And then it just went to shit. They, they stopped policing like they stopped protecting the businesses. Riots over and over continue to happen. And now in Detroit, they'll give you a house if you just fix it up. You literally, you can go to Detroit, no joke, there's houses that they'll give you. That's how bad it's, it's gotten in that city. We're, that's what we're doing to some of these cities. That's what these policies are going to do. They're destroying them completely. Talk to me about reparations. I want to get into like the slavery, the Black Lives Matter and things of that nature, because I had a great conversation with some man here. And uh, I want to kind of bring into some of these arguments, which I think have the power to fix some of our current issues, especially within the black community. Are you for or against giving reparations to uh, members of the African-American? No, I think number one, even if you support it, an impossible, impossible policy to pass. (laughs) Who gets it? Oh, you know, uh, just if you're black, black from where do we go back? Oh, you're white, but you're actually, I mean, technically I'm white, uh, even though I'm br- I look brown. Um, my family's immigrants. Do I pay taxes for that? Even though we weren't here when that happened, it's impossible to implement. Also, that's assuming money fixes all these problems, which is a silly proposition. No amount of money is going to fix some of these problems. And if we really want to dive deep and we might get a little controversial, but hey, you know, what the hell? Here's a deal. Number one, the top groups in America in terms of wealth, in terms of incarceration, in terms of success by most metrics are non-white group. Asians outperform whites and all of those. And then there's other smaller subcategories of groups. There are immigrants from certain parts of Africa that outperform whites. There are Middle Eastern groups that outperform whites, Indian Americans that outperform whites. So this, this idea that 
white people are so far ahead because you know they, the color they of their came skin. from just say just say it, the color of their skin because that's what they're saying the melanin in your skin is really where they're going with this is saying a black person versus a white person your skin color i can't take that i can't wear that right that's a, that's the argument that we hear so much but you just blew that out of the water and i was I'm hoping no, you did because no, no, the statistics go totally show that that's false okay but if you want to look at statistics if you want to get to the root cause if we look at a group as a whole and i hate doing this because i like to look at people like individuals but fine if we were to identify actual measurable um statistics that can predict whether or not a child is going to grow up and have a higher chance of being incarcerated or living in poverty Okay, there's a few factors you can look at, but you want to know what the number one is? Whether or not they grew up with two parents in the house. That's the number one best predictor. Now, I just talked about Asians and how they outperform white people in income, in incarceration, in drug abuse, and all that. And we talked about white people, uh, black Americans, right? Guess which one has the lowest single parent household rate? Asian Americans. The second lowest, whites. And the highest among those three is the black American groups who as a whole, over 70% are in a single parent household with white Americans. It's something like 54% with Asian Americans. Mm -hmm. I think it's in the, in the thirties, if I'm not mistaken. So that's a big one. Um, that's a big one right there that that solved and then raise your kids. And then I hate doing this as a general, as an individual, this is for you. If you're listening right now, that's something you can do that you can ensure your child is going to have a better potential quality of life. Don't have a kid out of wedlock and then raise your kids. And if you do get divorced, be involved in their life. That's the most important possible thing you can do to help that person. Here's the second thing, education. There is a decent correlation between the schools that you go to and how well you do in the future. Uh, minority groups, in particular Black Americans, are stuck in the shittiest schools in America. Why are they stuck in the shittiest schools in America? Because we don't let people choose their schools. You got to go to the school that's in your neighborhood. Well, if you live in a poor neighborhood, if you live in a bad area, which many of these tend to have more minorities than wealthier areas. Well, now you're stuck going to these shitty ass schools. Some of the most unequal things that you'll ever see in your life is public schools. Go to a public school in South Central Los Angeles and then go to a public school in Beverly Hills. You will see two completely different worlds. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a single mom or you're a family and you're struggling to get by and you're living in a poor neighborhood, you got no choice but to send your kid to that shitty school, even though it's a public school. What if we gave them school choice? What if we gave that person the opportunity to choose a different school? It's still publicly funded. What if we gave them a voucher and they could pull their school from that, their kid from that shitty ass school and send them to a different school? You know what's crazy about this, Craig? Do you know who opposes that? It's the, the left that opposes that. They hate school choice, which is insane to me. And I know why. It's because they like their wealthy you know, nice schools and they don't want kids from other, give them school choice. So you do those two things. Don't have a child out of wedlock, give them the opportunity to send their kids to better schools. Give it a couple generations and watch what happens. You see tremendous Do they not change. have busing? Do, I mean, have you heard of busing before? Because they have that in Connecticut. I know, I don't know if they do that around here, but there, there definitely was, you know, taking inner city kids and busing them into other neighborhoods and different things. Do they have that out there? It's state by state and some areas do it through quota. So we'll say, okay, we need to take at least 10% of the kids that go to school need to be from this area. It's so controlling and so insane to me. Why don't we just give the parents a voucher? Now you can pick whatever public school you want with this voucher. You know what'll happen? The good schools will get all the vouchers and they'll grow and they'll explode and the shitty schools will disappear. They'll lose their funding. Well, how do they have enough room, you know, for all these people, you know, especially if everyone's like, I'm just going to go to the good school, right? Like, how does that work? 
initially, you're probably going to see a lot of people flock to the best one. Uh Oh, that one's already filled. Now we go to go to the next big, big best one and so forth. But you allow that to happen. And what do you think will end up happening? The best schools are going to grow. They're the ones that are going to add more locations. And the good teachers are going to keep getting paid more. And you're going to get more of that. And the bad schools that nobody wants to go to, you're going to start to see those shrink or change the way that they educate. But right now, if you're in a bad neighborhood and you're struggling and you got to send your kid to school, you got no choice, man. You got to send them to that shitty public school down the street. Mm -hmm. that does a terrible job and gives your child far less chances of succeeding. Here's one for you. So you said the two things that I was on the same page with you 100%. That's actually the conversations we were having was he was saying that it was education. And I was like, fine, that's great. Education's how do you, how do you have education? And you just made school choice, but education. And then I went to the two parent household and how do you ensure that the two parent household happens? You make it so the single parent household who's on government assistance is limited. When I was in Wall Street, I was trading oil. I don't know why or what was going on politically at the time, but I was always, you know, writing these little notes, like if I ever wanted to like become somebody in, in politics. And I said, why don't we limit two households, two, two children for government assistance? And so put a cap on how much money goes out the door. Because today I know folks who actually have multiple people, multiple kids on government assistance and they'll get, they'll get pregnant again and again and again, just to get more bodies in the door and so that they're getting more money. So not to say that you're screwed today if you have this uh, systemic thing that's going on. I'll call that systemic for sure. But going forward, if, if a law was passed to say, I want to stop after two kids, you are no longer going to fund that household. What do you think happens? Do they stop having kids? Do they you know, take precautions? Or does that third, fourth, and fifth kid continue to take place? Or do we stop part of this issue that's happening is basically funding people who are never going to contribute? Yeah. So, okay. Two things there. Number one, the best thing the government can do is get out of the way. The best way for people to improve themselves is by improving themselves. With those laws that you're talking about, what we're trying to do is we're trying to solve a family issue, potentially a spiritual issue with a government solution. It won't happen. Here's some potential unintended consequences. You're not going to get any more credit after two kids. Okay. Now abortions go through the roof. Uh, number one, I definitely wouldn't make it for lucrative to not have a husband or a wife or a partner. I know that's what happened for a long time. You got more money if you were a single parent than if you had a, a partner. And I know they were trying to help, but they created the unintended consequence of creating an incentive for families to break apart. So get out of the way, essentially. But here's the thing. This is a crisis of family, of culture, of spirituality. This is not a problem that government can solve. So there is no policy that's going to fix that. The two-parent household rate among Black Americans was better than white Americans for a long time. A lot of people don't know this. Now, we can speculate why at that time they were very, very strongly Christian. So they had a strong spiritual background. That might have been why. I know family values were different. Uh, White Americans also had a much lower single parent um, household rate. This is a crisis of, of, of family. Here's the thing. I am definitely a supporter of freedom and free markets and liberty but it's only ever going to be as good as the morality and the choices of its people. And unfortunately, there's nothing government can do to fix that. Free markets, for example, it's are excellent at giving us what we want. But if all we want is alcohol, pornography, drugs, and strip clubs, then we're going to get a lot of that. If we don't care about good education and clean parks and products that better us as people, then we're not going to get any of that stuff. So how do we fix that? In my opinion, for a long time, we have stopped worshiping things that bring us value and instead have replaced that with things that are material that don't bring us the same kind of value. I think, and this is a psychological fact, all humans worship something. Every decision you make 
reflects your top value, whether it be money or pleasure or power or honor. It's going to be one of those things at the very top and your actions determine this. You might think to yourself, I don't worship anything, but you look at your actions and it might be one of those things, right? So when you eliminate spiritual health, when people stop worshiping God, which is perfect and the ideal, which teaches you to be patient and kind, teaches you to value abstinence and hard work, which teaches you all those things. You eliminate that. You start to worship pleasure, fun, money, power. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing. I don't think government, anything will solve that. We could have the freest markets in the world and the freest societies, which I think is the best government, but it still ain't going to solve those issues, Craig. That's something that people have to figure out themselves. And we are in a bit of a cultural, spiritual crisis when top-selling magazines have covers of girls with fake butts and stuff they're promoting and you know, the number one visited websites or pornography websites. And I get all that. I'm not a perfect person and I do all that stuff too and whatever. But let's be honest, those are problems we can't fix with government and trying to fix them with government. It's going to make things a lot worse. So I would like to see, and everybody, I think, even people who are Marxists, I think would like to see mankind progress to be better and better and better. The best method of allowing us to get there is to get out of the way and let us figure it out. So that means small government. That means protecting our liberties and our freedoms. That means personal responsibility. Stop placing the blame on people for things that they didn't do. Stop telling white people that they need to pay money for the things that their ancestors did. By the way, everybody's ancestors did something fucked up if you go back far enough. Somebody had an uncle that was a piece of shit. You don't need to pay for those crimes or those actions. Let's judge each other as individuals. Protect those. It's not a guarantee, but that's the best path. Everything else is just going to make it a lot harder in my opinion all right guys if you like that episode make sure you give us a follow give us a comment wherever you're listening and uh find us on social at cracker perso for myself and sal is going to be at mind pump sal on instagram and make sure to check out those guys podcast the mind pump media podcast uh three hosts over there sal adam and justin they do a really good job um i don't think they get into politics like i do here but uh you know they talk a lot about fitness and everything else there so have yourselves a great one thanks for listening i know this one was long but we're out of here